On today's show, poet D.F. Brown tells us how nursery rhymes in the 1950s Ozarks were really just like Disney fairy tales and not scary at all. And Jessica gives us a very special public service announcement. This is the same 7th grade, 12th grade, 60 year old. They just, you know, they want to talk and not read. And not actually read the I don't understand that at all. But You can't beat the old people either. Oh yeah, you could. Oh, you could. You could. Okay. It was really, as long as the bruises didn't show and their spouses didn't, often they were grateful. I talked to Stan Rice, who was the chair at that time. He said, oh yeah, Creeley was here for two semesters, was on acid the whole time. <laughs> I said, the whole school was on acid, weren't they, in 1969? Right. I also wonder how we can get David's idea of poetry reading mandatory every Saturday. Yes. Can we make that happen? Meanwhile, well, I mean, you know, it starts at home, right? So we've got to make it part of our household. The family that recites together stays <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm Kate Martin Williams. I'm Jessica Cole. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. One critic said of the resurgence of David Brown's Vietnam War poetry after the Gulf War that not only does his poetry change how we interpret the war, it changes how we as readers listen to the testimonies of soldiers. It resists the typical rigid narrative codes we're used to in writing and even the talking about war. Typically as outsiders, we look to art to help us understand something as large and as incomprehensible as war. His poetry is not about making sense of the war, but rather of the truth-telling that comes from the resistance to make any of it make sense at all, that sometimes we just can't. The work of David Brown asked us to sit with him in the discomfort, in the pain, in the tangled unknowing, and that by doing that, by engaging with his poetry, we are participating in an act of radical solidarity. David Brown, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here, Kate. Sure. Um, I guess my first first question for you is uh, just about your uh, when you started writing poetry about the war. How, how long was it after you returned home? Uh, well, I, uh, I was in the Army for 10 years. And uh, uh, when I got back from Vietnam in 70, it just didn't, it seemed like a good place to be. For a Vietnam veteran to be in the military, there were lots of other veterans and nobody was given us any hassle. So I got out of the Army in 77 with the notion of going to poetry school at San Francisco State. My wife said, you should go to banking school and divorced me and the first <laughs> casualty of literature. Then as I moved, I was living in Southern California, I moved to Northern California at San Francisco and there was a postage stamp a beige postage commemorative for Vietnam veterans. And it really irritated me. Um, there was no real red or green on the stamp. Well, maybe there was, there was a Vietnamese, the old Republic flag with three red stripes, but uh, I noted all of the deficiencies in my first poem, and that was 19, late 78, early 79. But I had, generally convinced myself that I'd never have to write about the war. And so 
uh, I went to San Francisco State uh, with a little trepidation, thinking this is hippie U. Angela Davis was there as a faculty member. Mario Savio, who led the Berkeley Free Speech Movement, was there as a physics professor. The first people I ran into were hippies, and but my first real teacher was so generous and that I just started coming with poems about Vietnam. Well, I actually began as a sports writer, but I had Blake in my pocket since I was 12 or 13. Mm. And I, you know, I always try to get 13 and 14 year olds to read Auguries of Innocence or The Marriage of Heaven and Hell, which is a challenge, but they, if they get it, they get it exactly. I wonder if you could start by reading, reading us a poem. Do you mind? No, never mind to read a poem. So this is uh, First Person 1981. This, I think, originally was for my sister, uh, who told me many years later that for whatever my mother suffered, my mother always said she never worried about me when I was in Vietnam because she felt psychic and knew I was coming home. But my youngest sister was very upset very upset. How far apart in age are you? Nine years. Mm -hmm. And uh, our father passed away when she was three, so I was her surrogate dad and older brother. And so we were real close. First person. There are days I have to pretend I'm someone else to get out of bed, make all the necessary noises, remember how it ended, how the end is still caught in so many. I get through those days. The lowest part of the jungle is a pale green gnarl, roots and vines searching for sunlight through this tangle. <laughs> I like the displacement in that poem. You know, I like to start in one place and end up here and you don't know which, if it's somebody noted in the questions they sent me that I had sort of melded Missouri, where I grew up, and uh, Vietnam. They were kind of the same at a certain point. Yeah, Jessica has a deep and abiding love of place that she returns to in her fiction. Uh-huh. Do you know Richard Hugo's uh, Triggering Town, Jessica? Have you read that? Uh, yes, one of my favorite poems. I read it. I read it first at UC Davis. Yeah, amazing poem. I think I read that poem in the Gary Snyder class I was taking because he's so obsessed with place too. All right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was a big Snyder reader for a while. My first reading I went to when I read, I had trained in San Francisco at Letterman Army Hospital in '68 and '69, and so I returned there to San Francisco State, thinking Robert Creeley was on the faculty. And uh, he wasn't, and I hadn't bothered. He was a buffalo, right? Oh, yeah, and, yeah, but he was yeah. there when the book Pieces came out okay. in 19, when I was in Vietnam, and I found a copy of that book in Vietnam, and uh, I talked to Stan Rice, who was the chair at that time. He said, oh, yeah, Creeley was here for two semesters, was on acid the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I said, the whole school was on acid, weren't they, in 1969? Right. Right. So I miss Creeley, but I got Carolyn Wright, so I was in good shape. That's funny. Then, then Creeley was banished to the frozen north, because I think he's been at Buffalo much of his career, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He retired out of Buffalo about, I don't know, 
maybe he was the Meritish at, in 2005, I guess. I'm not sure. I've met him several times, and I went to a reading uh, at the Women's Center in San Francisco in 1980 with nine of his books, and he very graciously signed every one of them. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering about the place of poetry in today's culture and wondered if you can comment on that, just with this sort of, you know, the dawn of Twitter and our... Um, smaller, shorter and shorter attentions. I think I've put off Twitter for a long time, but as I myself waded into it, I realized that there is something to confining your thoughts to that's 140 characters and and, um, making a point in a short amount of time. And I don't want to liken Twitter at all to poetry, but that maybe there's something there that forcing people to confine their thoughts, the economy that is required when poetry, are you seeing that? Well, I don't know, I can't speak to Twitter, and my granddaughter Clara would be embarrassed by that. (laughs) (laughs) I think actually commercials have a greater influence on poetry than Twitter. They're these Hmm. really pungent language and powerful images, and they come together, and and their iterations are so frequent that people sort of absorb, or maybe I have absorbed, only maybe nobody else. Uh, that kind of form. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I have so many influences. It's it's sometimes, and I can't pull all the threads out. But uh, uh, I think for me, uh, that that has a greater impact, at least on maybe on my generation, because we were, besides boomers, we were the TV kids for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's interesting. I think. Uh especially with commercials you don't always know it's happening yeah until maybe you've seen it the third or fourth time which uh you don't know that it's it's sitting with you or has affected you yeah and then um i feel that way about rereading returning to poems that i had read a long time ago or sitting with your work and you know letting a couple weeks pass and then returning so david was in guiyang in was it 69 and 70? Uh-huh. And I was born in 1970 in Guiyang. So oh my gosh. when I was born there, he was there. Well, I was very near. I mean, we, I mean going to Guiyang to visit my guys who were casualties, there was the field hospital in Guiyang. Mm-hmm. And uh, the closest that I was ever spent any time was around Phuket mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Vintan. Okay. Uh, up the river, the Song Khan River. Uh, but I know that territory. Yeah. yeah. I guess it's the territory of my heart. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned Guiyang and even a spoon can be a weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's sort of right along that highway from Guiyang to Plejirang on the Cambodian border. Uh, 19, QL19. Know that road very well. Yeah, there's. I don't. I'm not a synchronistic guy, but I think it is something to. I mean, it pleases me so much to run into somebody uh, from there, so many years later. Have you? Mark sent us the article called "War Trauma and Recovery" that was about your work. Thomas Darcy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was wondering if you how you felt about the sort of proposition, the thesis that. Um, well, 
I, I've always leery uh, when they start to talk about you know therapeutic values of poetry, and I'm not sure that's true. Uh, I, you know, I like the part where Darcy says I'm the most underrecognized poet. <laughs> but the uh, you know I I learned a long time ago because I really came out as a Vietnam veteran when uh, my first book was published in 1984. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial Walk. We were sanitized. At the beginning in 84, a very astute critic named Laurie Smith picked up on my work early because it was different than the other Vietnam veterans who were writing poetry in the 80s. And, uh, and she was astute. And then... Uh, Can, how, how was it different? Well, she really, she was a younger professor and had gone through the deconstructive uh, program when she was uh, uh, in graduate school. And so she really, you know, my poetry is always trying to deconstruct and pull out the pieces that are too often ignored and the prices that uh, are generally ignored. And she picked up on that very quickly about taking things apart to look at their, the impact of the elements. And then... Uh, and the other poets of the era weren't, you're saying they weren't doing that so much as? Well, not in a sort of language way. They were, they were talking, I mean, uh, the great thing about the program at San Francisco State is that uh, there was this reading series that didn't happen uh, in the Wortham Center. It, they brought uh, poets to... Uh, the classroom and to a small uh, uh, sort of classroom auditorium in, in San Francisco State. And so I heard Bruce Weigel there, and uh, then Bruce Weigel is a good friend of Carolyn's, uh, CD Rides. And uh, so I got a lot of encouragement from Bruce, and but also I heard, you know, Jory Graham uh, with her first book, Barrett Watton. Uh, that was the other bonus part. While I was at San Francisco State taking, for all of its hippie youth stuff, taking a fairly standard literary-based creative writing program, the uh, language writers were in ferment in San Francisco and in the East Bay, maybe even more so in Oakland. And so I, we got to hear all of them shuffled through the reading series, and they really appealed to me because they move past the metaphysics and sort of sentimentality of a lot of verse and to uh, uh, something grounded more in the experience of the language itself and what does that mean or how does that mean more accurately. So, I mean, I, it was a wonderful program. It really, I had an undergraduate degree in journalism from Missouri and so I didn't have any literature credits. And so I had to spend two years before I went into graduate school just picking up literature credits. And it was wonderful. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd probably waited my whole life for that. And just read, 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 mm -hmm. and read some more. And inundated and able to talk to, you know, two-thirds of the poets I were reading one time or another. They'd be at San Francisco State. And uh, I don't know how I got on that line, Kate, but... <laughs> If I can return to your question, if you'll repeat it. <laughs> well, now I'm thinking about another question about what sort of your take on language is from that influence. 
and I don't want to talk about a dirty word in poetry, but how does that impact accessibility to your readers? I don't know if accessibility is a dirty word to you. Yeah. One thing that struck me about reading your poems is that for me, who's not a poet like Jessica is, and Jessica has a lot of schooling, uh-huh. I, I was strictly fiction and, and you know, audited a few poetry courses. And so something about poetry can be intimidating, especially either to people like me or, or you know, a seventh grader. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering how that sort of focus on language impacts your accessibility, because I found your poetry very accessible, which I don't think is a bad thing. I don't either. I mean, I, I, that's not a dirty word to me. But their experimentation and great play was what appealed to me, that there was, uh, I was permission, mm-hmm. and I, I needed a tremendous amount of permission. First, to kind of, from, I, I got from the language folks, and who were an incredibly generous group of people, and they're all lefties, and so I, again, worried that what being a Vietnam veteran would mean they were very generous, and one of my good friends to this day is Carla Harriman. The great play and experimentation that the and then the great variety of their work. Uh, there must have been at least twenty language poets publishing in the Bay Area in the early '80s, and Kit Robinson, Lynn Hagenian, Carla, uh, Bob Benson, Bob Grenier, whole incredible things, and. Uh, so there was this ferment of poetry readings, lectures, panels that took us away from the campus. And several times uh, we would start our own graduate seminar to get to just go to those lectures. We'd go to those and write about them, and we get graduate points for them. So it was cool. Mm-hmm. And like I said, I needed a lot of permission first to open the vault of the war and share it with somebody who wasn't veterans. And once I got over that. And I wasn't, you know, slam dunked because of the, all the epithets that veterans were stuck with. I, I ended up really getting benefit from those people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I suppose it can be in a number of veterans. For a long time, I wanted veteran approval. You know, I wanted the seal of this is accurate, this is how a, a number of us, not just the outliers, felt about the war. So uh, I, I, I learned because of the, when I came out was a popular time, a successful time for Vietnam veterans, that the critics are gonna say what they're gonna say. And uh, that's just down the stream. You know, the first couple of times I was sort of, oh no. But overall, well overall it's been a, uh, a positive thing for the, from the critics. But uh, so if it's therapeutic, fine. You know, and but that's my, not the aim. That's not it. There, my poetry has got really, ultimately, very high literary aim, both in a contest uh, or a conflict with literature, as well as making a, another uh, annex to the canon about war poetry. I've looked at and taught poetry, and always keeping one eye on my own little bag of tricks. That has been. Even the most anti-war poem ends up being some kind of macho sort of test. You know, this is how I registered as a male. That's a troubling predicament, and particularly now when young men are being sort of economically drafted into the army because there's not real jobs in America, Mm. that it'd be nice if they read poetry. 
on Saturday and thought about it. Um, no, have you all spoken about reality television yet? No. That poem? The poem or the phenomena? <laughs> Hopefully the poem. I don't care that much about the phenomena, but yeah, I really like the poem. Okay. Oh, you do we have time for him to read it? Sure. So reality television, 1969. I have to confess, I've never seen a reality TV program. Just for you. I might be the last person on the planet. Dude. No, I don't think I have either. That is, you have you read so much pop culture, internet drivel, Jessica. How have you not? seen any of the shows to which they refer. Survivor, Big Brother, none of that? (laughs) Bachelorette? Nope, never seen it. Well. (laughs) Reality television, 1969. I thought I knew the way through words to tell again the soldiers take, how language harbors expectations, and not just the wasteful carnage of youthful courage cut down for a culture that needs their blood to purpose what little poetry can be made from their death. What marks those boys slaughtered? They were sent, like you flush the toilet, to a war no one wanted anymore. So they gave it to their children, let them play with death, watch them die on TV during supper. I guess I wanted to ask you about what your process for writing a poem. An idea comes to you, and then and then what? Well, you know, maybe eight times, Kate, in my whole life, a poem has come in a whole cloth. I mean, sit down, bam, and wrote it. So I'm really about cut and paste and patchwork uh, and putting things together. And really more than patchwork, it's kind of, I work them like a Rubik's Cube. I just keep turning the lines, turning the lines, and keep, you know, I try to find sort of, again, returning to my roots in Blake, this, this, these binary oppositions that our culture's established on, I try to sort of subvert those or use them in a way that illustrates that it's a false opposition uh, and that uh, uh, I try to accumulate some things that bounce together and some things that bang on each other. And so the energy can, well, not leapfrog, but kind of grasshopper through the poem. And then I just keep working it until there's some kind of melody. And when the melody starts, and I memorized it, if I can say the darn thing, then I know it's getting close. That's so good. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in a real Holy Roller family, uh, and uh, summers were spent memorizing Bible verses. And the more you memorize, the more you got. So I put my good memory to work. (laughs) And uh, uh, maybe half of my poems is just that I can memorize things. Process is really about an idea that's uh, particularly about war or definitions of masculinity uh, that are bogus or specious or that uh, I want to find some way to take them apart and have people think a little different or to just maybe sometimes I don't get it why I can be as testicular as anybody sometimes you know it's like this testosterone have to drive this culture and I think probably because I'm also uh, 
really act boomer about questioning what we were handed. You know, all of my uncles were in World War II. There was no way I could not go in the Army and ever go fishing with my Uncle Ty again. <laughs> and that was one of the real joys of my life until we lost him, was fishing with these guys. And uh, Yeah, because you enlisted. Yeah, I enlisted after Tet of 1968 and the Siju Quezon. Uh, was it because of your uncles? It was because I was probably going to be drafted as soon as I finished at Mizzou. And uh, I wanted some choice. Uh, back to craft, I, I wonder if, this is one question that I love to ask other writers about, when you find yourself in a hole, when you, you have a concept but can't make it, can't make the Rubik's Cube line up the way you yeah. want, yeah. Has, has that happened to you recently where you couldn't um, sort of tame a poem into, its, into your submission? And how uh, did you find your way out? Uh, well, it hasn't happened recently. I'm really, I uh, retired in uh, 2014 and immediately had uh, five-vessel heart surgery. Uh, I had been circulating a manuscript uh, for three or four years at that point that had not even gotten a nod about, uh, you know, try us again next year. It just, and I figured, well, if I'm going to live, and the heart surgeon said you are, uh, that I needed to change something. And I'm not really quite sure, but I think it was mostly attitude. All those poems that won that uh, were written a year ago, January, and then immediately put in a sack and sent to Iowa. Really? Yeah, and it has continued. The real hole I got myself in uh, was an experimental hole in 1989. I had a thing called The Other Half of Everything published in Ironwood which is incredibly discursive. Uh, it's where the, grass ro the grasshopper came into my life. Uh, and it jumps through all of the social phenomena around America that uh, often act as screen for our involvement in war. Baseball, television, I mean 50s television, 50s baseball. And I was just, threw those like dice, put them together until the melody kind of took over. Well, uh, being published in Ironwood in 1989 was a very big deal. Ironwood was the place I wanted to be. And so I thought, I'll do that again. And I started a thing called The Little Fire in Burgerland and uh, uh, worked it to death and beat it up and threw it away. And that's how I got out of the hole. It was just like, this is, you know. Not and working. Not working. And uh, it was something that, I mean, it came fairly, oh, I know, I was, it came, uh, other half of everything came from a project uh, Jock Reynolds did at the Washington, D.C. Project for the Arts, uh, looking at uh, how art had helped America soak up Vietnam. And uh, so I wrote it for him. It got published in Ironwood, and then I tried this, you know, repeating a good thing which didn't work <laughs> so I don't know I just keep going I don't like think about writer's block I, I think you just find what you need to be writing about you know you don't uh, let it uh, uh, I mean I write every day uh, and I, I have to it's kind of about survival but it's also kind of an obligation uh, to uh, well to myself 
primarily, but to guys that I lost in Vietnam and guys that I saw suffering in army hospitals for many years around the war. And uh, there's something in that agony that has not, uh, I mean, has not been expressed. I mean, the, the beautiful poems that Bruce Weigel writes, uh, the soul suffering that goes on there, the incredible moral examinations of John Balaban, uh, Bill Earhart's, uh, you know, it's politics of uh, uh, peace uh, are all poems I love, you know, and Doug Anderson, I don't know, uh, uh, Jessica, do you know Doug Anderson? No, that you you're, you preempted my question. I was just going to ask what other wartime poem, or not wartime. Uh, he's poems, up in Amherst. Uh, okay, uh, that's new. <laughs> he's got a wonderful book called Moon Reflected Fire, uh, mm. and uh, he actually's got several good books: Horse Medicine and uh, uh, one of them about retired CIA agents. I can't think of the title of it. So I, the thing. Uh, well, I don't know where, if you want me to talk about the, the Vietnam poets. I was uh, very lucky that Bill Earhart put my poems in this thing called uh, Unaccustomed Mercy. And uh, uh, I had been looking for them, these guys, Komuniaka. Uh, uh, and there's been several times we've ended up reading together. Mm -hmm. Once a decade, it seems like we get together. Uh, wow. And uh, at the Air Force Academy, or a few years ago at Haverford College in Philadelphia. Uh, and I'm just, you know, uh, really a magpie. If I see something I like, I have no shame. <laughs> I grab a hold of it, I can use that. And uh, so you take uh, uh, John's moral high ground and Bruce Weigel's almost, you know, beauty is a thing forever. What is the Keats line? Uh, a thing of beauty is a joy, joy forever. forever. Mm -hmm. The uh, beginning of that long poem, uh, Endymion. Uh, what? Uh, and then Bill Earhart's political outrage, and then put them together and then take them apart and examine how these constituent elements make meaning about war because everything we're offered about war in this culture, which is a military empire, is bogus. Absolutely bogus. We were not fighting for the freedom of the Vietnamese. We were destroying a culture. And for people who lay around now thinking we were spreading democracy, they're an illusion. And uh, it is, well, I don't have to say anything more than there are almost a half a million dead Syrians, you know. and. You know, what what are we going to be? So, what you know? So my friend is in MD Anderson right now. Asked me the other day because uh, he's not literary. He, I grew up with him in Springfield, Missouri, and he, although he was my friend all through childhood, uh, he runs a salvage yard, and I I was telling him, you know, John, I think uh, these poems are like trying to salvage what is decent and what needs to be repeated about war and uh, to make some use of what was really a awful, brutal experience. Where are we? Is, I'm just is he gonna... a vet? No, no, he, uh, no. Uh, he was damn near blind as a kid. His vision was so poor. I can clearly remember the day he got contact lenses. It was a half, he had these Coke bottle glasses. 
Uh, and he got contacts. He was the happiest guy on the face of the earth. You know, <laughs> man, he could have a girlfriend. He really did. <laughs> And he could see her. That's important. Oh, that's such a good answer. I want to read all of those poets. And I, yeah. Hmm. I also wonder how we can get David's idea of poetry reading mandatory every Saturday. Yes. Could we make yes. that happen? Meanwhile, well, I mean, you know, it starts at home, right? So we've got to we've got to make it part of our households, and then. You know, I'm going to bribe my children into memorizing that. David's poems. Mm-hmm. Oh, mm-hmm. well, I'm honored. We'll start I, there. I mean, I, especially since we have sons, Kate. Mm-hmm. But it might be better to start off with some nursery rhymes. That's where I began. Right. My mother uh, <laughs> was, well, she was a holy roller, but she also understood. Uh, uh, I grew up in a set of books called Childcraft. I don't know if you ever heard of this. This is mm-hmm. 40s and 50s. Uh, set of books that had nursery rhymes and then poems and I remember to this day the uh, uh, the moon is a ghostly galleon tossed in the stormy sea and the highwayman comes riding riding to the old inn door where Tess the something brown-haired daughter the innkeeper's daughter is chained to a rifle and the only way she can warn him he's riding into an ambush is to pull the trigger and kill herself so <laughs> Which is the other thing I, I, I resist and resent is the, the romanticizing of death. I don't think there's, I mean, there's too much of that in literature in general, but it's like, hold it. We, in a culture that is a military empire, uh, that is fatal to a lot of people who don't understand anything more. I think poetry is political, uh, but I think in this what seems to be the crumbling of America right now, both in terms of our own liberties and in terms of uh, an economy that will have most of us in the uh, uh, selling apples for a nickel apiece. Uh, mm-hmm. That there's every reason. I mean, I used to write down every day when I was in graduate school, I have to believe that poetry will save the world. And I was thinking from its scope, from the Bible is poetry, Shakespeare, how these things have been a kind of cohesive uh, force in Western culture, but uh, uh, easily marginalized force. And uh, that fits hand in glove with the, the managerial elite's plans to have us passive watching uh, The Bachelorette and, uh, and salivating. Uh, I suppose. I haven't seen it, so I don't know. Is this the program where the guy gets to pick the girl? Yes, right now it's a girl who's picking the guy, but uh, yes. Uh, okay. Same. Yeah, that's it matters not, not really. Uh, yeah, it's sort of vulgar and either. But that's what it's it is. It's been 13 years that the show's been on air. Just no, this no. Side note. Hold on, hold on. And it's the first black woman. Yeah. So no, they're they're now praising themselves for having... Person of color that, as the that subject. They could sort of reverse the role of slavery. <laughs> Fair yeah. word. You know, Seriously. You're 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 picking the. the, the well, there's a racist. Or... One of her suitors is a very blatant racist. And oh I, my again, god. I've read uh, about this rather uh, than seen it, but mm. it's yeah. The politics there are pretty gruesome. Yeah. Mm. Politics of the wallet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think 
poetry can save the world still. I think I, I still believe it. I do. I think that kind of attention to detail and nuance and um, really, you know, looking at things and making interesting comparisons so we can see better. I think it still can. But yeah, we just have to start reading it again in our houses. Yeah. Yeah. The yeah. family that recites together stays together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what you know. Mark Twain said, "You only three things you could say to a writer: When's your next book coming out? Uh, do you have it in manuscript? Can I read it now?" <laughs> Those are the three questions. We don't have to write any more interview questions, Jess. It's true. Just use those. Yeah. Well, Mark Twain is big in my life. I'm a Missouri boy, and my wife was born. Uh, in uh, Twain was born in Florida, Missouri. He grew up in Hannibal, but my wife was born in Louisiana, Missouri. Uh, both of them. Uh, these places existed. <laughs> they're you know very small towns north of St. Louis mm -hmm. on the river. Well, Florida's a little off the river actually, uh, but so I've always felt close to him. And if, if, if you ought to read Robert Coover's new book called Huck Goes West. God, is it a riot? Is it? It is so good. Yeah. Check it out. Robert Coover, who wrote The Babysitter? Oh, yeah. There's only yeah. one Robert Coover that I know. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And your wife's an artist as well. Yeah, she's a ceramicist. Oh, nice. Yeah, she <laughs> does big big clay pieces and lovely functional stuff, too. I When, I, when we first married, when I moved to Houston, Carolyn Wright sent me a note. I heard you're going to Texas. If you're going to Austin, look up so-and-so. If you're going to Dallas, if you go to Houston, look up. These are all little friends of hers. And uh, So it took me a year coming from Berkeley to Houston. It, I was never sure each day if I wasn't going to drive back to California. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad I didn't. And after a, exactly a year, I called her up and said, Carolyn said I should call you. And... Uh, and it's been really good. And I think all American boys should wait until they're 45 to get married. Because <laughs> we'll be more grown up. <laughs> I agree. Well, I get, you know, really the big thing in my life was I'd been sober for a couple of years when I met Tracy, and my two previous wives didn't enjoy that uh, at all. Mm -hmm. So that made a big difference. Sure. All right, well, here's our uh, speed dating questions. Okay. You have to have a sense of humor. Oh, uh, I do. <laughs> I, I was born on April Fool's Day. <laughs> Perfect. Oh, wow. So I'm condemned <laughs> <laughs> to humor, <laughs> laughing. Okay, if I did a search and find on your latest work, do you write on the computer or do you write on the, with pen and paper? I, I edit in the computer. Okay. So if I did a search and find what... Uh, word would I find you tend to overuse? Word. Word? The word word. <laughs> the word word. Words pulled that's out of words. Best. Okay, that's uh, the best answer. Yeah. No, we can't, we can't ask this question anymore, Kate. That's okay, the best well, answer. Mic over. drop. Mic okay. drop. <laughs> what, word, what word do you hate to hear misused and, and or mispronounced? Oh, gosh. I, you know. I have to tell you, I'm not sure if there is one of those because I'm with the real mispronounced. 
I had so many words that I'd read and never heard the environment mm -hmm. I grew up in and then we barely spoke English in the Ozarks it was a twangy <laughs> kind of <coughs> uh, archaic uh, thing the, how about Viagra uh, you know any way you want to say it any way you want to play it uh, you know the words I I don't know that uh, when I was an English teacher I had those at hand but now I don't really care anymore mm. the way mm -hmm. people pronounce things and in Texas that's a survival skill yeah. <laughs> true. True. that was a joke sister <laughs> no I, I I think it's I, I dead serious yeah Tennessee too yeah. What's the title of the uh, Word document last opened on your desktop? Uh, Vietnam Stub. If you weren't a writer, you'd be a... Gardener. Mm. Book that's on your coffee table. Uh, the uh, Terry Allen's monograph, uh, his, actually the catalog of his retrospective. It's got a section in there, youth in Asia, youth in Asia, youth in Asia. Book that's on your nightstand. Well, there are three. There's John Lacaray's uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Mm -hmm. There okay. is uh, the new uh, Thomas Lux collection of uh, Bill Knott's poems called "I Fly Into Myself." Mm -hmm. There is uh, uh, oh. Viet Ten wins uh, uh, the refugees. What's the book on the back of your toilet? There isn't one. The, it's probably the New York Review of Books is in a neat stack next to the toilet. <laughs> What's your favorite place to read? Uh, well, really outside under an oak tree with a large mm -hmm. lemonade. And, uh, Even with a heat index of 104, well, like it is today. Right now, I'm you know I'm only there very early in the morning because it is grinding. Yes. Yeah. The writer you'd most like to have dessert with. Uh. Well. Well, I think I could sit down with Wynn for sure. This guy's written three beautiful things that every American ought to read. The Sympathizer, mm -hmm. Nothing Gets to Die, and I haven't finished the short stories in The Refugees, but they're poignant short stories. And, you know, for so long, and I think you know, veterans probably for sure, you know, I read a few novels from Vietnam in the 80s and 90s, and then Bound in Sorrow of War, which was exactly where I was along the Cambodian border in uh, Pleiku province. And uh, we don't, we need to hear from the Vietnamese. You know, we own it so much, we get to dictate uh, the Vietnamese or our partners. Mm -hmm. Even the NVA, you know, a lot of veterans went, so this didn't kill enough communists. We did a dance in the jungle together, and you want to make sure they get home safe if you dance with somebody. Mm -hmm. And so that would be the only reason I would go, would be to run into some People's Army of Vietnam veterans. Otherwise, I would be, uh, I, I wouldn't, I couldn't do it. I don't think I could. But if I had, I mean, John Balaban was asked to speak at General Jop's funeral. 
and I have a set of photos that John sent me that show him the Vietnamese national television was walking him up. There's a line with 10,000 people. I'm gonna cry. <laughs> Lined up to see Jap's body. And the TV folks moved John to the head and in. And you could see in the first photo that several guys covered with decorations, medals, was going, hold it. You know, this, why is this guy cutting one, this uh, Westerner? And then John, who is not quite fluent in Vietnamese, but speaks, begins to talk to them. And then somebody from the Vietnamese television explains, and you could see their faces just open up to him. It was an incredible thing. You know, my friend Lee Childress, who is, whose testimony is in a book called Everything We Had, he said, you know, if we could have just gotten up, he was in a place called the Iron Triangle. It was a bad place all the time. He was just a motor pool sergeant, but he might as well have been in the infantry. And he died of cancer, oh, 17, 18 years ago now. Uh, he said, if we could have just talked to these guys, here we were slinging death at each other. These are guys just like us. If we could have had a chance to talk, the war would have been over. Mm -hmm. But the leaders in their obstinate dedication to killing people mm -hmm. didn't make that possible. So I don't know what the question was. <laughs> but that you'd like to have dessert with. Um, so, yeah. 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 I, I, I actually tried to get uh, Vic on, on the podcast, and <laughs> he turned me down. Because he, he said he was in he Paris did. this mm -hmm. summer and uh, spending a lot of time with his family and finishing up a manuscript. And uh -huh. then I saw him on Charlie Rose. So That's I, awesome. I, I loved that book. The Sympathizer, I, I, it, I, it's with me forever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't read so, it. It enlarged yet, my life. I could uh, feel I think, it. If he had some better things to do in mind to be on a podcast. Well, <laughs> yeah. we'll get him we'll get him in the next yeah time. We'll, we'll get him in the next time but at least yeah. he responded yeah oh, he's a yeah, very generous guy a... uh i mean i only know him on facebook which uh, means i don't know him at all but i've uh followed him from just prior to sympathizers popularity and uh mm -hmm. he is always i mean you hear as much about his son ellison as you do about his tremendous success. And mm -hmm. to me, that's somebody who's got his stuff balanced. Mm -hmm. which... Yeah, yeah. We should all aspire. Okay, so to um, dogleg into uh, uh, very far away from that, uh, writer that you'd most, most like to have sex with? Oh, you're asking a 70 <laughs> year old man about uh, the writer I would. Well, Jane Ann Phillips, mm -hmm. although 25 years ago, <laughs> I, love her. I do too. You know, I love Jane Ann Phillips. Nobody's beat fast lanes uh -huh. yet, uh, and uh, I'm a big fan of Lark and Termite, and a mm -hmm. huge fan of uh, uh, Shelter. But I love Black Tickets yeah. and Fast Lanes and. Machine Dreams is one of the best books about Vietnam, understanding how our culture created that war. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, she said she was at Iowa with uh, uh, Dennis Johnson, and oh, wow. who just recently passed away. 
And she yeah. said she looked around at the people who were writing poetry and immediately switched to prose. <laughs> <laughs> so in her heart, she is a poet. You know? I didn't know that. Wow. I guess you can tell, especially from Black Tickets. Yeah. We'll link also uh, to our listeners, we'll link to all these um, writers and mm. works that, uh, that David's oh, mentioned. Oh, that's generous. That's Thank a great you. idea. That's yeah. a great go. idea. Um, back in the day, the writer you would most like to have a beer with? Well, I've been sober for 29 years, so I would be glad to have a cup of... Well, I'm, they have to be alive right now. No. Uh, I would like to have Carolyn come back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Dennis Johnson, his book was important. I never met him. Uh, he was in Northern California when I was in graduate school. Uh, I would like to have a beer with Dennis. Uh, he's sober, too. He was sober, too, when he died. Uh, so we would, we would have lemonade. Uh, very smart guy. His human smoke is a monument to that war, too. Uh, tree of smoke. Tree of smoke. Human smoke is uh, Nicholson Baker's uh, argument for pacifism in World War II. Human smoke. Mm-hmm. And uh, was that his last tree of smoke? Was that his yeah. last? No, oh, no, he had uh, uh, something train. He said three shorter, very short novels oh. before he died. Mm-hmm. He, uh, but his uh, die, killed in a war I didn't go to, was an important poem to me. Oh, you know, when I think about important poems to me, and I have to honor Dennis Johnson, but if I could really have a beer with somebody, back when I was drinking, I would love to sit down with George Oppen. Mm. Uh, I sat next to him at a uh, Robert Duncan reading in 1983. Mr. Oppen was in the early stages of dementia, so he didn't remember it, but... I was like, hung, hung, hung. Uh, heart beating out of your chest. He is, uh, you know, when the, one of your questions was about how would I teach a poetry of war and Oppen, I would glue it in Oppen's of being numerous, uh, his survival infantry. He was a World War II truck driver, but in the Battle of Bulge, everybody picked up a rifle and tried to stay alive. And uh, so he knows what it's like, and he has written some wonderful insights about war without drowning it in, you know, gore, patriotism, or a, a fascination with death. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love George Oppen. There's so many. I was lucky at San Francisco State because there was the residual of the beatniks, and there was language cooking, and there was these wonderful. I mean, uh, in my program, besides C.D. Wright, was. Uh, Frances Mays, who is a better poet than she is a memoirist. You know, she's famous for that Tuscan kitchen thing. What is it? Tuscan after? Under the Tuscan Sun. Under the Tuscan Sun. Mm-hmm. She has got some really wonderful poems. Uh, I didn't know she was a poet. Wow. Yeah. Well, after she got so famous and rich, uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, you know, you get known in America for what makes money. Mm-hmm. And so. You know, I don't know what your best year looks like, but my greatest year was like twenty three hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, oh. not right. Yeah. I also I have to say there must be maybe it's because I I was getting a master's in poetry in a school in California, but I know the poets that you're talking about, and I feel like I don't know enough poets 
but I I love George often. I haven't even thought about him for years, but it's I read him every week. I was there. I was there um, in the late '90s, early 2000s. But did you do you do you good. teach at San Diego? No. What, no. What no. Was I, th- I went to UC Davis. Oh, UC Davis. Masters. Ah. But yeah. Okay. So many of the poets, I, I, I really thought that you'd be speaking about poets that I'd never heard of, and certainly the war poets that you were talking about, I don't I don't know enough of, but anyway, silly side note, but no. maybe I'm still a poet. That's my, that's my <laughs> conclusion after this. Uh, let's go to the biggest writing success you've had. Speaking of $2,300, what was that from? Oh, that was a, the stipend for a, a residency at uh, the Washington Project for the Arts. Mm. And uh, I, there, in 1986, or 88, <laughs> maybe 86, uh, Jock Reynolds gathered photographers, painters, musicians, writers, movie makers, and looked a broad scope at how the culture had soaked up the war. Uh, how it, it, it came out of Maya Lin's Vietnam Memorial in DC and the fact that mm-hmm. it very quickly became the most visited uh, memorial there. And then suddenly every town in America had one kind of plinth or tombstone mm-hmm. or little mini wall. And uh, the, uh, and including Kent State, uh, uh, has a uh, uh, memorial to the four students who died, but it's you know there were casualties of Vietnam as well. I think. I mean, I always think of you know even you younger kids. We're all veterans of Vietnam in a osmotic kind of uh, way. You know, I love the Ironwood thing, just personally because Michael Cudahy, I could see uh, how important it was to CD write and being published in Ironwood and. CD. You know, I went in the Poetry Center at San Francisco State in 1980, a place that W.H. Auden and Ruth Diamant Whit started, and I was this hillbilly veteran who really talked funny. And uh, I walked in the Poetry Center and looked around. They had huge shelves of poetry books, and then the the person who was there was on the phone, and then she turned around and said, "Can I help you?" <laughs> And I said, you sure can. <laughs> I believe you can. Where, where are you from? She said, Harrison, Arkansas. I said, well, I'm from Springfield, Missouri. We're 112 miles apart. She said, well, I went to college in Springfield, Missouri at Drury College. And mm-hmm. I said, well, shit. We're related. <laughs> and that, <laughs> that was C.D. Wright, you know. And there was, she was in the deepest grief for Frank Stanford's suicide the year before, two years before, in 78. The whole time that I was really hanging around with her, she was sad because of Frank's suicide. And, uh, but at the same time, she was incredibly generous and made all this stuff possible for her students. Then she writes really great stuff. And well, like I said, if I could bring her back and have a Coca-Cola with her, we'd be there all afternoon. Mm-hmm. 
Well, it's my hope that uh, we turn some more people onto poetry and uh, your poetry in particular. And well, amen, sister girl. <laughs> it's been an honor having you on the show. Thank, Thank you, you so much, David. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you, Jess. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you by Bloomsday Writing and Publishing. Write to be bred. Find out more about partner publishing and cooperative writing at bloomsdaywriting.com. And by our friends at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, recording, graphic design, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. Production assistance and audio editing by Duke Liu. Our social media and marketing maven is Paula Liu. And our chief audio, visual, graphic, and everything else engineer is Fulu, who constantly reminds us the perfect is the enemy of the good and who loves us despite the fact that we consistently ignore him at our own peril. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Bloomsday Writer. Show us some love, subscribe to our show, and leave a review on iTunes. Jessica's back? Jessica's back. I am. I'm Hot here. damn. Hot damn, he said. <laughs> <laughs> I well, you missed the best part, baby. I'm sorry. I know. Well, I'm so glad that it was recorded. Oh, oh, that's right. Well, you haven't missed shit then. I have DMS this morning again. It's uh, it's been clinically diagnosed. It's called droopy Mike syndrome. Oh, okay. I need a um, I need a little blue pill. I think. Pharmaceutical. Need some pharmaceutical intervention. Why can't I remember the name? See, Jessica, what's the name of the blue pill? It's a lot sexier that it way. Is, it is. Yeah. <laughs> F and Shakespeare sponsored by Viagra. <laughs> 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 <laughs>